0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for every word contained within your word. Lord, we pray that you may help us to comprehend what it is you have said to those who belong to you in the past, but also to us who belong to you today. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may work upon our hearts this morning and help us to understand more about you and understand more about ourselves and those who live amongst us. And so, Lord, we pray that we may be greatly edified as we look at your word together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in life, at different points, you will want to separate yourselves from those around you. Who do you separate yourself from? And how long do you separate yourselves from those around you? Sometimes you may want a permanent separation from someone or some, a group of people, particularly if they're having a bad influence on you, you say, I need to remove this person from my life, sometimes it's more of a temporary separation that you feel you need from those around you. And that may be because, yes, you don't get on with them, but you recognise you need to still have some contact with them. Or it may even be those that you love dearly, you just want a little bit of time to yourself. You need to separate yourself even for just a few hours from those around you. I sometimes feel this, it's nice to get out of the house and be in my office here at the church. I feel like sometimes I just need that little break from those people that I dearly love, but I just need a little separation from them. And I think it would be difficult for me if I was a pastor and working from an office at home. I really appreciate being able to have an office here at the church that I can separate myself from the noise and chaos that sometimes descends upon our house. Our house is generally a fairly orderly place to some extent, but uh, sometimes it's very disorderly and interruptions do come. And it's nice to be away from those, to be separate from them. The passage that we've been looking at uh, is Ezra chapter 10, and we've been slowly working through Ezra. And today we've come to the subject of separation, of separation, And that's what we're going to be looking at as we go through uh, these few verses together this morning. But you may be saying, well, how does Ezra, this passage that we're looking at, how does it fit in with the whole of the Bible? Ezra is a bit of an obscure book for many people. For many Christians, they haven't actually read the book of Ezra or never really understood what it's all about and how it fits into Israelite history. If that is you, then I'll give a quick recap as to where Ezra fits into Israelite history. Basically, the the storyline of the Bible begins with Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and that begins with God making the heavens and the earth. He then makes two people, Adam and Eve, and from Adam and Eve you eventually get this man called Abraham. Abraham has a grandson who is named Israel, and from Israel you get the 12 tribes of Israel. Those, uh, The Israelite family, that moves to the land of Egypt for a time, and while they're there they get enslaved by the Egyptians. The Egyptians uh, mistreat them, and eventually God takes them out of Egypt to the land of Canaan, and that happens under the leadership of Moses. Uh, Moses takes them through the desert, and then Joshua helps them conquer the land of Canaan. They then live there for quite some time. They have a series of kings over them. One is uh, King David, who is quite famous, and then the kingdom actually splits under, uh, after his uh, David's son Solomon and basically the Israelites sin again and again. God sends prophets to them. They continue to rebel and eventually the Assyrian army comes in, a Babylonian army comes in a bit later and pretty much wipes out the Israelite race to a large extent, although there is a remnant. And that remnant is primarily people who are taken from the land of Canaan back to Babylon and they live in exile there for a time. God protects them while they're there in Babylon and then eventually he allows them to return to the land of Israel. And that is where the book of Ezra picks up, is the the waves, the, the these groups of exiles coming back to the land of Israel. And Ezra himself is a man who leads a wave of these Israelites back from Babylon to the land of Israel. And when he gets back there, he instructs the people on how to live and while he's there he finds out that many Israelites have actually been marrying people from foreign nations, women from foreign nations. And the law, God's law, had said you cannot marry people from foreign nations and particularly those who worship other gods. That's the main problem. It's not that God is against interracial marriage. He's against interreligious marriage. He's against you marrying people who follow a different God. And Ezra finds out about this, and then we saw in chapter 9, he prays to God about this matter, and then we've been slowly looking at how the Israelites respond to the fact that many Israelites are married to foreign women. And so we've seen Ezra uh, fast about this, we've seen people give advice, and we've seen that uh, there's an oath taken about this matter as well. And then last week we looked at the fact that a meeting was called to deal with this subject. And so that's what we looked at last week in verses 7, 8 and 9, how the Israelites are told that we're going to have a members meeting about this particular issue and we're going to resolve it and everybody must show up or there will be disciplinary action. So last week we looked at the importance of uh, having meetings and uh, the need to be with other Christians and particularly to resolve difficult sin problems that may have occurred within a community. But now we're going to look at what is the solution that is proposed for this particular problem. What what, What is meant to happen if you're in a mixed marriage? And we see my first main point this morning tells us what Ezra proposes. And that is my first main point is Ezra encourages separation from unbelieving spouses. Ezra encourages separation from unbelieving spouses. If you want to follow my main points, they're listed there on the back of the church bulletin so that you can see where I'm headed. And so my first is about Ezra's instruction that those who are in these mixed marriages should separate from their unbelieving spouses. And we see that in verse 11, page 470 of the Black Church Bibles, page 470, Ezra chapter 10, verse 11. Ezra says, Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives." You must separate. You must divorce yourselves from these foreign wives. And we've seen that this is something that has not been slow in coming. It has been building. Uh, Shechaniah has actually proposed this solution back in verse 2. Ezra didn't come up with the idea initially. He may have thought of it, but it wasn't first vocalized by Ezra. In fact, back in verse 2, we saw uh, that Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Alam, said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. So Shekinah proposed this earlier, and then Ezra has already had the people take an oath about this matter. We read that in verse 5. Verse 5 of Ezra, chapter 10. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what has been suggested. What has been suggested? Well, the words of Shechaniah have been suggested and they are that the people should separate themselves from these foreign wives and their children that have come through these intermarriages. So Ezra is quite clear here. The people who are in mixed marriages... Need to divorce their unbelieving spouses and send them away with their children. Now this raises a question for us today, doesn't it? Doesn't it? This is God's word. We're meant to follow God's word. We're meant to receive instruction from it. What does it have to say to us today? Should it be that separation, divorce, is the Christian practice in mixed marriages? If you're married, to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, should you divorce that person? Should you separate from that person? Well, that's where we've got to ask, does the New Testament have something to say about this matter as well? This is Ezra, but we should never take just one isolated passage and say, well, this is our instruction for how we are to behave. We should look at what else does the Bible say about such a topic? And that's where we have to look at the Apostle Paul and his teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so that brings me to my second main point this morning. Paul discourages separation from unbelieving spouses. Paul discourages separation from unbelieving spouses. See, the church in Corinth had a particular issue going on concerning marriage. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, speaks quite a lot about marriage. Had some questions for him about marriage, and so he addresses all these questions and speaks to different types of groups. If you want to have basically the the part of the Bible that speaks most clearly about marriage, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so I encourage you to flip with me there to page 1132, page 1132, and we'll see how the Apostle Paul reflects on this issue as well. But I just want to give you a quick overview of what the whole chapter is about. Basically, the question, uh, the main question that has been asked of Paul by the Corinthian church comes in chapter 7, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. We read the Apostle Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about. So the Corinthian church had written about a number of matters and you see those uh, come up at different points in the letter. And he says, Okay, one matter that you wrote about. It is good for a man not to marry. So basically, there were people in the Corinthian church who were saying, "That's not Paul's words." He's quoting there from the uh, the Corinthian letter. He's saying people are saying it is not good. It is good for a man. Sorry, it's good for a man not to marry. And one way that this can actually be translated is it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And you see that as a Footnote, if you've got the NIV translation there in front of you, you just drop down to the margin. Uh, it has a little letter A. They're associated with verse 1, and it actually has that translation there. There were people proposing in the Corinthian church that it's just better, if you're a Christian, not to have sex at all. And so then Paul says, okay, let's just have a look at marriage in general, and I'm going to speak about different issues relating to marriage. And so he goes through in this passage and addresses different groups and how they should respond to the subject of marriage. And so firstly, he encourages Christian couples to be faithful to one another and not divorce themselves from each other. And so you see that in verse 3. Verse 3, we read, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. And then he goes on about the wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. So he looks at the fact that sex within marriage is a good thing and it is okay to have sex with your uh, spouse. And then he also addresses them further down in verse 10. He says to the married, to married couples, I give this command, not I but the Lord, a wife must not separate from her husband. He's clear that you don't get divorced. If you're married, you don't divorce yourself from your spouse. And uh, I should just continue that in case you're thinking that he's only saying wives can't separate from their husbands, but husbands can. Verse 11 says, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to a husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Just in case some feminists were here in the room saying, oh, there's the Apostle Paul saying that wives can't divorce uh, but husbands can. No, the Apostle Paul is quite clear. A husband must not divorce his wife either. So firstly, he addresses these married couples. But then we see that Paul also addresses the unmarried and widows in verse 8. He says, Now to the unmarried and widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to mer- marry than to burn with passion. He's saying if you're unmarried or a widow... If you can, you know, stay unmarried, that's okay. And I think there's a particular circumstance going on at this time which encourages him to say this. But he says it's okay to get married. It's perfectly okay if you, uh, if you're unmarried at this time or a widow, that's okay. You can get married uh, even if you are a Christian. And then he also speaks to virgins later on. Uh, a similar idea is given to them in verse 25. He says now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who is, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to, to spare you this." So remember there's particular circumstances going on that he actually uh, mentions. There's a present crisis, he says, in verse 26. And so he says it's better if you're single, stay single. And then he goes on to elaborate on that. And maybe this afternoon, if your interest is piqued on this, read through 1 Corinthians 7 and uh, study it in greater detail. But what I'm showing you here is that he's got different groups in mind and he's speaking to them and giving them advice and saying marriage is good. It's okay if you're a Christian to get married. But he also addresses those who are married to unbelievers. And this is the key passage for us this morning as we try to understand the teaching of Ezra and take it to us today. And so he addresses those who are married to unbelievers in verse 12. In verse 12 we read, To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is, they are holy. So here we see in these verses that Paul does not see separation as the necessary step if you're in a mixed marriage. If you're married to someone who is not a Christian, he does not see that separation is the logical step for you. He says if you're married to that person and the person is happy for you to be a believer and stay married to you, then stay. Don't seek a divorce. So that means that if they're happy for you to read your Bible, to spend time in prayer, to go along to church on Sundays, they're happy for you to be a Christian and they still want to be married to you, Paul says, don't seek a divorce. Stay married to that person. And you may think, oh, well, oh, but there's such a damaging influence on me. I I shouldn't be married to an unbeliever. And that's what you see with this question that's coming through from the Corinthian church in that verse 1. It's like it's better just not to have sex at all. And let's face it, let's not, in mixed marriages, it would be really terrible to be engaging in such an intimate connection with people who are of, of, uh, worshipping a foreign god, who aren't worshipping Christ. Why would you be wanting to associate with such a person in such an intimate way when we understand that marriage is that most intimate of unions in this world, surely you would separate from them. But Paul says no. In fact, you actually will have a positive influence on that person. Rather than them simply having a negative influence on you, you can actually have a positive influence on them. And that's what he's getting at in verse 14. In verse 14 he says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is a tricky verse to understand because when we hear the word holy, we think saved. We think if you have holiness, if you are holy in God's eyes, then you're a saint and you're saved. You're someone who is sanctified. But... Just because something is holy doesn't mean it's actually got salvation. I mean, in the Old Testament, there's lots of things, even uh, inanimate objects that are called holy. Does that mean they are saved because they are holy? No, holy just means set apart, different. We say that God is holy. God is not saved. He is holy because he is different from us. He is other. He is very different from us. And we strive to be holy like him, which means we are different from those around us. And so what happens in a mixed marriage is the unbelieving spouse and the children in that home are set apart in the eyes of God. They're different from the rest of the community where there is no believing spouse in that home at all. There is a positive influence that is had upon that unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife and on those children because there is someone in the home who worships God. There is someone in the home who prays. There is someone in the home who reads the Bible. There is someone in the home who goes to worship with other believers. And so there's this positive influence and the, and the personal character of that person as they live like Christ in the home has this influence on that house house for good. And so Paul says, don't go out, don't get a divorce. Stay in that home. So, if Paul teaches this and Ezra teaches that, we saw Ezra teaches that spouses should separate if they have an unbelieving spouse, and Paul teaches that you shouldn't, Well, what are we to do today? How are we to understand this? Does not Paul know the law? Ezra was living in accordance to the law, was he not? He was someone who knew the law very well. And the law in Deuteronomy had said, do not marry those of foreign nations. What is it that we are to understand when we come to this passage that seems contradictory to one another, these two passages that seem contradictory? Well, that brings me to my third main point this morning. My third main point is that Ezra's situation was different from Paul's situation and ours. Ezra's situation was different from Paul's situation and our situation today. We must remember that Ezra was living in a time where God's people were a national group. God's people were a national group. Church and state were one and the same. If you were God's people, you were part of a state. You're a national group of God's people. And we see hints of that given even in the passage that we've been looking at in Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. Flip with me back there. If you've got 1 Corinthians 7 open, keep your finger there for a moment because we're going to come back to it. One uh, Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. And last uh, last week, we looked at. Verses 7, 8 and 9, and there's a call for a meeting about the issue of intermarriage. And it was interesting the way that the people could be disciplined. If you recall, how could they be disciplined if they didn't come to the meeting? Verse 8 tells us, Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders, and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. They would be expelled from the assembly... Which we looked at last week on how we do that as a church as well. We remove people from membership if we see that they're living immoral lives, if they're not coming to church, if they're not associating with the body of believers. We remove them from membership because they're not part of us. So we expel them from the church, from the assembly, like they did here in Ezra. But notice what else happens to those who fail to show up at a meeting, those who are not uh, are not faithful to the community. Verse eight anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property. Do we at Dremoyne Baptists do that if you don't show up at a members' meeting? We take all your property off you? Some of you may think that sounds like a good idea. The church uh, funds would increase greatly. But we do not do that. Why? Because we do not see that the church is linked with the state in that regard. We can't confiscate people's property because we are not a nation of God's people like it was with Ezra. And Ezra shows that he's got this view as well when he considers God's people, that they're a nation state, in what he says in his teaching, well, what his instruction is to the people in verse 11. Verse 11, that verse that we're looking at today, where we see that he says, separate yourselves from your mixed marriages, what else does he say in that verse? He says, now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will, separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. He doesn't want just the mixed marriages to break up. He wants the people not to have anything to do with the other nations around them. He wants them to separate from those people. We have to remember that in the Old Testament, God's people were associated with the state, with the state of Israel. And also God's people were associated with whose family you were connected to as well. It all came back to whether you were part of Israel, whether you were part of Jacob, that grandson of Abraham, and whether you were directly connected to him. And when the Israelites initially come back from exile, there's this list that is given in Ezra chapter 2, looking at this genealogy, which I preached on many years ago now, according to my records, 2010, five years ago, so I'm sure you don't recall. But in 2010, I went through that list, and you look at how they all try and find out from their genealogies whether they're connected back to the people of Israel. And some people were actually excluded from the community, from the priesthood as unclean because they could not. It says in verse 62 of chapter 2, they these searched for their family records but they could not find them and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. It was all about whether you were connected back to Israel and then of course to Abraham, the man who received the promises of God. That's what it meant to be one of God's people in the Old Testament. But then the New Testament comes along and we understand more fully that God's people are associated with those who have faith in God, that really all along God's people are those who believe in God. It's not about what country you live in makes you a Christian or who you're related to makes you a Christian. It's about your faith in God. And an example of that taught in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is found on page 1131, page 1131, where Paul says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case you would have to leave this world. He's saying, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, not at all meaning the people of this world, because if you wanted to stop associating with such people, you'd have to be taken out of the world. What he's talking about as he goes on in verse 11, he says, I'm talking about those who are sexually immoral and are part of the church. Verse 11, but now I'm, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but he's sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. He's talking about that. But he's not saying don't associate with anyone who's sexually immoral. He's saying don't associate with those who are, call themselves believers and are sexually immoral. He's saying you can have Christian friends. You can have, uh, you can have business interactions uh, with non-Christian friends. You can have non-Christian friends. You can have business interactions with those who are non-Christians because you're still in this world. And you're not an exclusive group who are forming your own state based on your family connections and based on the fact that you are in that particular nation. No, it's now about a personal faith in Jesus Christ is the clear teaching of all of Scripture, ultimately, and the New Testament is very good at this, showing that Abraham was one of God's people because he believed God. He believed in God, and that's what made him righteous. And... Jesus himself teaches that it's not about who you're related to that makes you a Christian as well. In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 verse 34, flip with me there as well. Matthew chapter 10 verse 34, Jesus teaches very clearly that rather than seeing families as unified toward him, he's actually come to break up families. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus knows that his message is divisive, that it's going to come in and there are some people in the family who are going to believe and some people in the family who are not going to believe. And they'll be turned against one another because they have conflicting faiths. One of them believes in Jesus, one of them does not believe in Jesus. And so we see in the New Testament that again and again it is clearly made uh, it is made clear that those who are part of God's people is not because of your nation, not because you're an Australian, not because you live in Israel, not because you live in England. It is because of your faith in Christ. And it's not because of who you're related to. Your father can be a Christian, your grandmother can be a Christian, but that does not necessarily mean that you're a Christian. What makes you a Christian is your faith in Christ. And this is a wonderful component of the Gospel. This is a wonderful aspect of the Gospel that we should love. This is such marvellous news that it doesn't matter where you're born and it doesn't matter who you're born to. You can become a Christian too. This message is for people of all nations, from all families. All you have to do to have salvation, to have eternal life, to be with God forever in heaven, is believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. Recognize that you're a sinner and turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. This is wonderful news. This is good news and it's for everyone. Now, how is this relevant to us today? Well, if Paul is speaking to a different situation than Ezra, and Paul's situation then continues today, then we have to understand that mixed marriages are not encouraged to separate. That if you're a Christian and you're married to an unbelieving spouse, then Paul's situation is the one that we have to abide by. Now you may say, okay, hang on, but Joel, you've been teaching us from Ezra for a few weeks now, and for a few years now, if we go back far enough, and all through that, you've been giving us principles from Ezra as to how we are to live our lives, and you've said that Paul has specific commands that... uh, Well, you've said that Ezra has specific commands that Christians are not to marry non-Christians, but here you're saying that if you're in a mixed marriage, it's okay, and don't separate. But is it then the case that we can actually marry unbelievers, that if you're a single Christian, that the unbelieving market is available to you as well as the Christian market. Sounds terrible to call people a market, doesn't it? But that's how some people see it. That um, you can then marry those who are unbelievers. Well, that's where we have to look at what Paul instructs us as well. And when I preached on this a, uh, a few weeks ago, or a few months back now, I did show that Paul clearly teaches that believers are not to marry unbelievers, that he is in accordance with Ezra and what Ezra takes from the law, from Deuteronomy, that believers are not to marry unbelievers. And we see that in a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, 1 Corinthians 7:39, where we read, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. You can marry anyone you wish, but you, he must belong to the Lord. And another passage is Second Corinthians chapter six, verse fourteen. 2 Corinthians six fourteen, where we read, "Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God." As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. He's saying what fellowship can you have with darkness? If you have the option of marrying someone, Paul says, marry a believer. Don't marry an unbeliever. So the New Testament, I think, is very clear. If a Christian is married to an unbeliever, the unbelieving, and the unbelieving spouse is happy to stay, they don't want to walk away. They aren't saying, you believe in that Jesus nonsense, I'm way out of here. Well, if they do that, then let them go. But if they're happy to stay, then don't try and get a divorce. And if you are a Christian and you're single, remember that marriage is permitted only with other believers. Now, if you've got more questions on this whole area, if you want to delve deeper, then one of the best books that I could recommend is a book by Jay Adams, which is called Marriage, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. Jay Adams is a Christian counsellor, uh, well-respected, and this book is an excellent tool that I have at my uh, fingertips uh, on this subject. And he gives different examples, different uh, sticky situations, I guess you could say, and he tries to unpack those. He'll have examples where, okay, but what happens if this happens and this happens and this happens, what do you do then? And this book is really helpful on that, on marriage, divorce and remarriage. And it is available on the church library and so you can borrow it for four weeks at a time, just sign it out. If you're more interested in the subject of divorce and separation, particularly mixed marriages and uh, and singles and and that kind of issue, then pick up this book. But what advice do I have for you this morning? What is the teaching that you should take away from this? Well, Again, remember that the teaching of the New Testament is what applies to you today, not simply the teaching of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very much in accordance with the New Testament at times, but we've got to remember it was a particular revelation given to a particular people group at a particular time. And so we have to follow the instructions of Paul today. If you're married to an unbeliever and they're happy to stay married, then don't divorce them. Remember that you are actually having a positive influence on them. And stay in that marriage according to the teaching of Paul. And if you're single, then marry only in the Lord as Paul also instructs. What about the rest of you? If you're not in a mixed marriage, you're not single, what should you do in light of this teaching? I've got two tips for you this morning. Pray for those around you who are in those two situations. Pray for those who are in mixed marriages. It's not easy. If you want to know, just ask someone in a mixed marriage. It's difficult for them. Yes, they have a positive influence on that unbelieving spouse and on the children in their home. But it's difficult for them as well because there's that negative influence that is happening all the time as well. Pray for those who are in mixed marriages around you. And pray for singles. It is very hard for them at times. You tell them you can only, the Bible tells them, and then you tell them from what the Bible says that they can only marry in the Lord. That means the market, we so to speak, shrinks an awful lot. Particularly for young women. Because there's not, there's always more young women who are believers, generally speaking, in churches than young men. It is very difficult for them. Do you pray? For the single Christians that are known to you? Do you pray for them as they go through the struggle? As they look for a spouse, do you pray for a spouse for them? Do you pray for them to have satisfaction in their life with the singleness that God has given them? The opportunities that they have, that they wouldn't have if they were unmarried, that they would rejoice in those opportunities? Do you pray for singles? And do you pray for those who are in mixed marriages? And the other thing that you can do in light of this teaching as well is show particular kindness to them. Don't just pray for them. Show kindness to these people in these situations. Show particular love and care. Show extra fellowship to those who are in mixed marriages. They crave Christian fellowship in a way that you... You may not recognise if you're particularly in a Christian marriage yourself. You're just used to saying prayers at the dinner table. You're just used to reading the Bible together with your spouse and praying with your spouse when a particular issue comes up. They don't have that. Show particular concern to have fellowship with them. Call them up more regularly. Spend time with them. Talk to them. Make meetings with them. Because you know that they crave in that Christian fellowship that you don't enjoy. And the same with Christian singles. They crave to have people around them who are believers as well. You get used to it when you're in a, a Christian marriage. It's a wonderful thing to have a Christian marriage, but you get used to it and you just think, oh, yes, you're used to having Christians around you all the time. You can forget. And so we've got to make sure that we love those who are in mixed marriages and singles and show them kindness and care. I know here at Des Moines Baptist you're a loving group of people. I really enjoy ministering to you as your pastor. You're a wonderful group of people. But I want to remind you from this word to show particular care for those amongst us who are in this situation. It is difficult for them at times. Some of them are great battlers and they don't need much encouragement. That's okay. But some of them do. Make sure you pray for them, make sure you love them and are kind to them as much as you are able. Let us come before our God in prayer. Let us speak with him. Heavenly Father, We do thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you call us to yourself regardless of what nation we are from and what people group we are from, what families we are born into, that we can all know you through Jesus Christ if we will come before you in repentance and faith. Oh, Lord, we pray that we all in this room have turned to Christ. And, Lord, we pray that you may help us to know how best to live for you We pray for those who are in mixed marriages. We pray that you may help them to stay strong and cling to you even as they go through this struggle. We pray for those who are singles, who are wanting to marry believers. Oh, Lord, we pray that you may provide believing spouses. And we pray that if you do not, that they may take satisfaction in the singleness that you have given them. Lord, we pray that they may use their lives for your glory even as they long to be married. And Lord, we pray for those of us who are in marriages with believers. Lord, we pray that we may take particular care and attention of those around us, knowing that their situation is difficult and showing them extra times of fellowship and love and care where we are able. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.